Hello, welcome to the Car Stories Podcast. My name is Kyle Hyatt. Uh, my fearless co-host, uh, I think he's out somewhere in the outback terrorizing ruse in a ute. Um, he should be back from Australia, uh, hopefully sometime in the very near future, uh, unless he encounters some kind of a trapdoor spider or perhaps a large snake or a croc. I don't know. Uh, in any case, uh, I'm here with uh, John Roderick. Uh, if that name sounds familiar to you, then you probably uh, listen to podcasts that are not car related because John does several of them and they're very good. Uh, my personal favorite uh, is Roderick on the line in which he has a uh, very uh, extended uh, free form conversation with his good friend Merlin Mann. And uh, he also does road work with uh, Dan Benjamin, another uh, Merlin Mann uh, regular collaborator. Uh, and John is a big car enthusiast and, and we're psyched that he said yes. Uh, when we asked him to be on the podcast, he's in LA for a short time and, and we grabbed him all we could. So welcome. Thank you. It's yeah. a pleasure to be here. So I guess getting started with it, like you, you know, you have a, a great love of cars and, and, and as we were discussing previously, maybe, uh, somewhat, uh, unrequited in that you don't get to talk to him with you know, about people or with people uh, quite that, quite often. So, you know, uh, we're, we're psyched. We're psyched that you're going to do that with us. Um, yeah, I'm psyched too. It, it's true that uh, <clears throat> when you when you love cars and you develop like a, you develop that relationship with cars where you're curious about them and you're mm -hmm. curious about cars even that you don't personally you're not personally interested in, but you're just like curious about all cars. Sure, you want to talk about them. And I live in a world of of rock and roll. And uh, specifically indie rock, mm -hmm. where no one has, like cars are just not what people think about or talk about. Yeah. And it's very frustrating to, you know, to want to talk about the difference between a 67 Cadillac and a 66 Cadillac. And mm -hmm. no one gives a gives any kind of care about it. That's true. Like quickly, I mean, even outside of the world of, of indie rock, I think like being a car enthusiast among, you know, quote unquote normals. Uh, quickly earns you a reputation that's that's not totally dissimilar from being kind of like the stinky kid in class. <laughs> like you're there, people acknowledge you, but nobody wants to engage you in conversation for fear that you're going to start talking about like Solex carburetors or something. Uh, but yeah, so so uh, you grew up uh, in Alaska, yeah. which um, is a story in and of itself. But um, I would imagine that that growing up in Alaska would uh, provide a lot of opportunities for, for some shenanigans with uh, automobiles. It did. I, you know, my, I guess my love of cars started because my parents both thought about cars quite a bit. Mm -hmm. My mom identified as a, as a Dodge Plymouth person. Sure. Well, they're the engineering company. Yeah, that's right. And also, you know, I, I think in the, in the, uh, in the sixties, you really did identify very specifically, or typically, you know, mm -hmm. with a brand, and she um, she had no interest in in uh, Chevys or Fords. My dad was an eclectic car lover mm -hmm. and was an early adopter, at least by our standards, of German cars. He sure. he wanted uh, he loved the Audi brand, even when Audi was sort of su suspect. Yeah, well, they had they had that that big. Uh acceleration problem yeah exactly. although although that i think was overblown well sure but uh and my and dad was like he was very interested in performance but he also i don't know he you know he had a diesel audi 5000s which had which you know was like 
uh, zero to 60 in an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. You know, it had just no, nothing. And it was, it, it, he got the manual because well, he wanted sure. the sport. But of like, course. But yeah. then later on in our, uh, in, uh, you know, in the, in the early 80s, in the mid 80s, dad kind of upgraded and he got a Quattro hmm. and a 4000S that he bought, I think, just for the kids, you know, for my sister. Oh, wow. And, uh, and for me. And so we had Audis and we played with them, but it was, um, you know, in Alaska in the winter time. I mean, even in in the 1980s, Alaska still had, and it still does. Frankly, you go five minutes out of town and you're in the wilderness. Yeah. And so we tra- we treated these these uh, cars, particularly the Quattro, as four wheel drive vehicles, four wheel drive sport vehicles. Yeah, naturally. And uh, and we tried to you know we tried to get a little air when we could, <laughs> uh, and we had a, a a cabin in a in a, the little ski resort. Uh, named Girdwood, mm-hmm. and Girdwood had its own airport, but um, but it was only open during daylight hours, okay, because it was just a strip. Out well, there. yeah, yeah, but it was a full. I mean, it was a full strip. You could land a, a Beechcraft on it. Oh wow! And we took that. We would take the cars out there and use that as a speedway or like a um, not not drag so much as like top speed <laughs> sure. uh, Sta- testing ground, standing mile, yeah, <laughs> and. Nice. Uh, and then, of course, because it was all snow and ice, you know, really, really packed snow, mm-hmm. um, we also used it to test uh, deceleration. And what that meant was arrive at max speed and then yank up the emergency brake. Sure. And so then the, that would throw the car into like an uncontrolled spin, but you had nowhere to, nowhere yeah. to go. I what mean, are you going to hit? Yeah, the, air, air, uh, the runway is a quarter of a mile wide and... And uh, two miles long, so mm-hmm. you know we would just spin, and that that's kind of a uh, maybe a unique experience in the in like teenage car world. Yeah, I think so. Every time I had uh, spun a car as a teenager, I was in very real danger of taking out any number of things. Right, straight into a tree or yeah, straight in, into a into a, a Lowe's hardware or something. You know, whatever. And you could see, and so what we, and then you're trying to regain control of the car, mm-hmm. but not. With the, I mean, certainly with your heart in your throat because you're going 90 miles an hour and the car is spinning. Yeah. Um, but it's not hard in the throat like we're about to die. Sure. And so we had all this, we had this opportunity to practice counter steer and all this stuff where, and I'm sure we could have rolled any one of these cars if we hit even the slightest <laughs> little, but it never happened, you know? Yeah. We were dummies and uh, and so it was, a, it was an experience both like of, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it, when I took driving lessons, one of the things my driving teacher did was take me to this ice road mm-hmm. and intentionally put the car, intentionally instruct me to put the car out of control. Sure. Um, because recovering your car uh, in a spin is an Alaskan necessity. Yeah, I was going to say that's that's pretty, uh, I mean, you know, that, that's, that's the thing too is that that's what they do in, in Finland. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly difficult to get a driver's license in Finland, um, and, and they do they do a lot of car control stuff. So you know, you're on skid pads practicing, you know, and you're you're recovering from spins and slides and stuff. And that's why all these Finns are great race car drivers. Oh, sure, of course, sure. That's Rally a, cars. Yeah, that's the great the great maxim. If you want to win, hire a Finn. Hmm. It's a true story. Well, and it, and when so when all those drift movies came out. Sure, you were prepared. Well, yeah, well, I, uh, drifting was a big part of how we just got around, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you went around a corner and didn't lose traction and didn't have all four wheels spinning, as well, sure. you, you know, um, then you weren't really 
taking advantage of, of the driving opportunity. <laughs> you weren't living life a quarter mile at a time. <laughs> That's right. That's not acceptable. But And so I developed like a love of cars, both through my parents kind of, um, you know, one of the main limitations in being a car lover, but uh, but sort of from Alaska and in and a minor league player mm-hmm. is that I don't have the resources, right, sure. to to really own the cars that I've I've always wanted. Well, I mean that's true of anybody. I mean that's true of like ninety nine percent of car enthusiasts. Yeah, I guess that's probably especially true. lately since the market has just gone completely haywire and like everything is now unattainable. Well, and and curious that because I'm forty eight years old. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that, you know, I started high school in the early 80s. And at that point in time, um, you still saw American iron on the road dating back to the 50s. There were 50s cars all around. Sure. Still just being driven by normal people. Mm -hmm. And 60s and 70s cars, and particularly muscle cars, they were pretty thick on the ground still. In my high school parking lot, there were like plenty of 72 Camaros and, mm. you know, and, I mean, there weren't a ton of 66 GTOs, but though you, but you saw them yeah. and somehow now we live in this world where, well, it's just the passage of time. All the cars look like lozenges mm-hmm. and those cars have all become unobtainium. It's true. Well, I think part of it and, and, you know, I apologize for lumping you into this, but, uh, boomers, uh, uh, <laughs> I think you you just squeak boomers. No, no, no. I'm a I'm solid Generation X, right by, by, in the heart of it. By like two years. No, no. You know when Generation four, X four started. Years. So I was born in '68. The first time I heard the term Generation X, it mm-hmm. was describing uh, a generation from yeah from '64 to '75. Sure. And then the boundaries of Generation X kept sort of moving around and then mm-hmm. because you wouldn't call Barack Obama Generation X necessarily. But but we could. You could. We could start that trend right now. Right? But like John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants is definitely Generation X. Sure. But he's 50 53, 54. So anyway, Generation X has 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 moved around, but I am so not a baby boomer. It's like All right. It's you know, baby. I was. I went to high school in the eighties. You like, sold. You sold me. All right. Okay. You sold <laughs> from was, your from your youthful perspective. Sure. I see that there's no. Probably believe me, no difference. the fact that I am technically a millennial <laughs> is the bane of my existence. Right. It drives you crazy. Although you could be Generation Y, yeah, which but, was a thing that we talked about for a while. Sure. And now doesn't exist. Yeah. What's the point? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Generation Y bother talking about it anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, when, as you describe your your high school parking lot, I mean, I I imagine sort of dazed and confused with a heavy dusting of of powder. Exactly yeah. right. I mean, the the maybe slightly more rust. The 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 seniors. Well, let let me put it this way: the freshmen in dazed and confused were the seniors at my high school. Okay, or the you know like had been graduated for a year. Sure. So there is there and Alaska, of course, is four years behind. Or fifteen years behind, depending uh, American cult behind well, American cult. Sure. So it felt very much like Days and Confused. Nice at my high school. That's awesome. So, uh, at what point did you make it back up to Seattle? Uh, well, Seattle or down is, rather. Yeah, down well. exactly. Seattle is where you end up if you're an Alaskan who has any ambition mm-hmm. outside of Alaska. Sure. And Alaska is a closed system, so you can have tremendous ambition within Alaska. Sure, crab boats and oil fields. Well, and and, and just if you're an adventure sports person, mm-hmm. if you are, um, if you're just really into Alaskan politics, 
Sure. But I wanted to be an artist, and so I had to move to the big city because mm-hmm. the Alaska is uh, not famous for its art. Let's say no, no, not so much. No, famous for a lot of other things, uh, which is great. I have never been to Alaska, and it's that's sort of one of my great shames as somebody that spent the most of my life in the Pacific Northwest. Is I never made that trip north. I've always wanted to go. Like I've always heard like horror stories about some of the airports that you fly into, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, like they're like terrifying, terrifying. Like it was like Fire Island or something. I don't know. Um, Fairbanks, I think it was, has like a pretty terrifying airport. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, yeah. And I've always been. So the airports are terrible, but Alaska has the most capable pilots. Sure. In the Western world uh, or in the world. Sure. I mean, I suppose there are probably some pilots flying in Africa that are in like paper mache airplanes that are really, really great pilots. Yeah. Alaskans also have that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> there's 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 a significant, not an insignificant number of people flying around in 1930s era sort of uh, uh, de Havilland beavers and whatnot. For sure. Well, so when I moved to Seattle, you know, I was very poor and mm-hmm. I became one of those people that lived in the walking culture. Sure. Uh, but I still coveted cars. Mm-hmm. And I had like a... I had a like a really motley assortment of cars over the years, like a 74 VW bus that caught on fire out in uh, Chihuahua. As they are wont to do. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I stood, I stood on the side of the road and watched it burn. And I had uh, like a 82 F250 uh, that had had a, just a SBC 350 shoehorned into it, mm-hmm. uh, which was, and you know, and all the plumbing had been sort of jury rigged. <laughs> and it was an, it, the, the vehicle was like an insult to everyone, right? Sure. Ford people couldn't believe they had given it a hard transplant, <laughs> and Chevy people just couldn't understand it at all. And, but it was a fine, serviceable truck. Well, sure. Uh, but like, but gross. Very, I mean, the only pride you could take in it was, was uh, uh, just the, pride of bizarre there's a uh, there's a lot of that kind of thing in the northwest too i think like especially like a dirty car thing like people have there's this like weird it's like a badge of honor to have a disgusting sort of older car like look at all the money i'm not spending on this look at how cool i am right and alaska has that you know quadruple right and and this was just a thing of like well i got this f-250 that's sitting around with no motor and i got this motor that's sitting around (laughs) let's see what you know how hard can it be yeah um so i so i was practicing kind of a love of cars but with but uh, in the way i could afford Mm -hmm. and then my band needed to tour sure I had a I had a band, The Long Winters, and we had a record that was successful enough that that we were you know that we were invited to come tour America and play shows everywhere, and so I I scraped together the money to buy um, to buy kind of what is the ubiquitous tour van, which is the the Ford E three fifty, the extended Ford E three fifty. Oh sure, the, eighteen passengers, nothing less. That's right. That's right. The uh, <laughs> got to have room for half stacks. Well, and yeah, sure. You build the bed in the back, which oh, yeah. we did, and uh, put your gear underneath it. And we had the V ten. Oh yeah, we bought this from a from a friend band, Harvey Danger. It mm-hmm. was there. You know when the, which you, which you were in. I was in Harvey Danger. Yeah. 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 But uh, you know when the band when a band gets their first major label money. Mm-hmm. The first thing that they do is go buy a Ford uh, E350 of some kind. And Harvey Danger got that money, and they bought this beautiful, 
you know, metallic blue with tinted windows. Oh, yeah. I mean, the V10, that's that's class. Oh, it was hot. Yeah. And so I inherited this van, and it was, the at the time, the most expensive thing I'd ever bought. Mm-hmm. I had never bought a th- – I'd never spent $10,000 on anything. I'd never had $10,000. So I owned this van, and I really, really uh, – in the Alaskan style, I just savaged it. You know, <laughs> we – Put 300,000 miles on it across the country. Sure. And the first uh, 180,000 miles, I just worked this van so hard, Mm -hmm. and I put it away wet, and I just, like, I mean, we would drive over the mountains in central California, and I would just be jamming it (laughs) um, until, like, you know, the transmission was, you could fry an egg on it. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just, I, I didn't care for it. Um, because I thought of it as a tool uh, to get my band around, and I like to drive aggressively. Well, sure. But about the time I was nearing 200,000 miles, I realized that I loved this vehicle, and I couldn't I couldn't believe how badly I had treated her. <laughs> and so then I started to baby her, and I started to, you know, maintain her and, and uh, because I'd lived in her. You know, mm-hmm. and with the bed in the back, I slept in this van all the time. I like I had a I had an intimate relationship, and but I realized I I realized the damage I'd done, mm-hmm. and so we limped to three hundred thousand miles, and I and I rebuilt the differential, and I and redid the transmission, and and the engine still. I mean, I'm sure the engine is running a ski lift somewhere right now. But at a certain point, the the um, return on investment was never going to yeah, work yeah. out. And the van just, the transmission fell out of it again. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a single body panel that didn't have some kind of damage. <laughs> and it just was like, oh, I have to. And at the time, it felt like, oh, this is an adult transition. I have to get rid of the van and move on, get get into some kind of adult car. Well, sure. Yeah. But the moment I got rid of this battle-scarred uh, hell wagon, mm-hmm. I regretted it. Like it, like a part of me was gone, and I still regret it. It's been more than 10 years. Well, the good news is that like now that you're going through this sort of, you know, you have this nostalgia for that thing. If you wanted to recreate that experience, all it takes is, you know, like 2500 bucks and a ball-peen hammer, and you're... <sighs> <laughs> You're pretty, pretty much good to go. Well, what's awful is I'm very, very, I'm very, very uh, particular about car design, mm-hmm. and my and and very shortly after that, 2010 maybe, Ford did like a subsequent reshell of the E350, the sure. same exact vehicle, but they put a new what I consider to be a bulbous nose on yes, it. Yes, I'm yeah, okay. With the big chrome grill, the mm-hmm. unnecessary Ford macho face. Sure, to keep the uh they did that with the trucks as well, you That's know, right. kind of yeah, the corporate identity got really Tonka truck. Yeah, yeah. It's super Tonka, but it doesn't belong on this van. Mm-hmm. And so I will not I would not pay a dollar for a van that had that face. Sure. And so, you know, I need to then buy an older one of these vans. And those are all now <laughs> pretty knackered. Yeah. They're, you know, also worked hard. Mm-hmm. I don't know who's got a, if there's anyone out there <laughs> that has a 1999 
uh, E350 with a V10 that's just been sitting in the garage. And still, you'd have to replace all the all the rubber, but well, naturally, yeah. And just hope that none of the spark plugs have blown out. That's the other <laughs> that's the other um, party trick of that particular series of engines. Is that right? Oh yeah. So Ford created this, and I don't know why they did this. The the people up in Dearborn, I don't know. Maybe they they got some bad cheese or something, and they had a, a fever dream. They created these spark plugs that are have, have a really bizarre long tip on them, uh-huh. and they're not particularly well seated into the head because of the design. So what will happen with, uh, with these and also the, the the V8s of that same era uh, is that the, the spark plugs will just kind of go uh, and then blow out of the head. Whoa. And then you have to get, there's a special kit that they make because they realize what they've done and they offer it in shame and they that you, you, you get this kit and you install a helicoil and it like gives a little, a little bit more thread to bite and stuff and then you you hope that it doesn't happen to all you know nine right. or or seven other uh, plugs that you have wow yeah and it, or they break that's the other thing is when you're trying to change them they break they snap oh that's very nice of yeah. ford yeah uh, this this motor i mean i could accelerate i could be at 90 miles an hour and accelerate going over the rocky mountains with a fully loaded van well and that's what you need yeah it had the torque to climb a tree mm-hmm. and so i never I never, I guess I didn't appreciate what I had at the time. Sure. Until I tried to take a fully loaded anything else over the Rocky Mountains. Well, yeah, and it's it's not, I mean, if you've never picked up like a, a JCM 800 or something, it's not exactly vacuum tube technology. No, you put six guys and six giant amps and a drum kit yeah. in, a play, in a thing. It's pretty weighted. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it weighs as much as a small tugboat. Yeah. yeah. Although I did the computation at one point and all the amps in the world, uh, don't equal the weight of 18 200 pound people right That's, yeah if you put that many big men in a car true uh you could, there's no amount of of cargo really unless you were hauling like sand mm-hmm. um that could match that weight so yeah. well that's good that's probably also why um Dinosaur Jr. only has three guys because mm-hmm. they have to carry on 9,000 pounds of amplifiers. Well, it's that and also... Uh, you <laughs> and, to, and Jay Mascus' ego. That and you only have to split <laughs> split the money three ways. There you go. Instead of split the money nine ways. Yeah, I mean, how, do, how does Godspeed You Black Emperor or a ska band, for for that matter, make any money? Right, they don't. No. Is the thing. Yeah, that's why they all live in hovels in, in yeah. uh, Montreal. They have roommates. <laughs> They're 65. <laughs> six, they'll be 65 years old with roommates. Uh, at this rate, we all will be. Um yeah, so I guess getting getting away a little bit from from the tour van thing, one of one of the many stories you've sort of hinted at, uh, but not gone super in depth on in, in, in your other podcasts is uh, you you've ridden a motorcycle across these United States uh, when you were a younger man. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's what was what, t- tell us about that experience? Well, again, it was another like I was a poor kid, and I I think one of the things about being Generation X is that we did live in the shadow of the baby boomers uh, and the baby boomers consumed all the oxygen in the room. Sure. And that's one of the reasons that Generation X resents baby boomers so much. Mm -hmm. And so in the late 1980s, uh, the boomer culture was having its first real big wave of nostalgia for 1968. Mm -hmm. And all the culture was just like wallowing in this sort of, uh, you know, Val Kilmer as uh, Jim Morrison, (laughs) kind of like, that's not really, it's not really the thing, but it's a, it's a sort of Vaseline on the lens version of what the sixties was. Sure. Incredibly self-congratulatory. 
Well, that is the hallmark of that generation. Um, and I'm assuming that most of your listeners are either from that generation or... Uh, as it turns out, baby boomers, not prolific podcast oh, consumers. Oh, of course, right. Yeah. Sure. So it's all the millenniums that are listening. That, that's exactly right. So, um, so, uh, so we were stuck in a world where we had to be nostalgic for the 60s because that was the only culture mm-hmm. um, that you had access to. And so when I graduated from high school in 86... I decided, especially coming from Alaska, I had no experience of the United States. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get a Volkswagen bus and drive across the country. It was like this, what I imagined was the modern day vagabond who was going to discover the the sordid underbelly of the country. I've seen Field of Dreams. It looks great. That's right. And so I came down to Seattle with, you know, a thousand dollars that I had managed to save. And I was going to, I was going to drive across the country. And then I start, I opened the, the newspaper and started looking through the classified ads. And even then, an, an interesting Volkswagen bus of any kind was 1200 bucks. Mm-hmm. And you could get them clapped out, but a clapped out one wasn't gonna drive across the country. No. Uh, a really, even a $1,200 one probably wouldn't, uh, even a $3,500 one wouldn't. And so I had $1,000 and I couldn't get in to a Volkswagen bus. And I was kind of devastated by it. I thought, first of all, that $1,000 was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And second of all, that uh, Volkswagen buses were just sort of handed out to young hippies who wanted to see America. Well, sure, it's the people's car. That's right. Uh, the, uh, that's right. So I couldn't do, I couldn't fulfill my fantasy. And I didn't know, I was like, what, is, what are some other fantasies I had? And so I stuck out my thumb and I hitchhiked for a long time. And then I, uh, I hopped on a freight train and I thought that that was a pretty good fantasy. So I rode around the country on freight trains for a while. Mm-hmm. But I realized like, well, that's pretty, ho- I mean, like being a hobo is interesting, but all the other hobos are 60 and they're also super dangerous people. You yeah. Know? You don't yeah. get to be a hobo because you're a gentle like yes. kind-hearted person. Like, That's true. You're driven to the rails by by the rest of the community. Mm-hmm. So I wanted a little bit more autonomy from uh, from other hobos, and also from where the trains went. And I so I opened the classified ads again, and I was running out of money at this point. And I found I had no experience of motorcycles and no knowledge of them. Sure. And I found an eighty-one. Honda um, 650. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like a CB 750 SS. No, no, no. Um, it was like a CB 650, which was a short-lived uh, and, and somewhat in that 80s style of like the handlebars were a little bit up. Oh, yeah. Okay. The banana seat was a little bit down. There it you wasn't. Go. It wasn't like a chopper. It wasn't a cafe bike. It was just this sort of weird, vague Japanese interpretation of what Easy Rider could be it wasn't, filtered through Knight Rider. It wasn't yet to that, right? Yeah. The the uh, Honda it came out later with the, what was it, like the Bandit or something that was... Oh, yeah, like the Shadow or something like that. But, but right before that, there was like a 250 they made mm-hmm. that was in pretty much chopper style. But it was, it might as well have been a scooter. Yeah. Uh, like a downscale chopper. This wasn't that either. It was like a commuter bike. Okay. Um, that just had indefinite styling. Okay. So they would call that, now they would call that a naked bike. 
a which naked is, pie. Which is a, that's a successful rebrand because that sounds a lot cooler than indefinite commuter style. Yeah. Yeah. What, what the hell is this thing? But I liked it, mm-hmm. and I wanted to put big chopper handlebars on it, and I wanted to put uh, like a big huge sissy bar on the back. Sure. And I took it down to, and I bought this bike in in Yakima. Mm-hmm. I took it down to the Harley guys. And I was like, hey, can you guys, you know, like the parts dump? Well, naturally. Yeah. And I was like, do you have any parts for this? And they were just so contemptuous of me. Like, <laughs> first of all, no, we don't have any parts for that. Second of all, customizing that bike is a ludicrous thing to do. Why didn't you save <laughs> your money and buy a junk Harley and stop being such a, like a kid? Well, then you'd have to spend all your extra money on replacing the oil that leaks out of it that's, constantly. That's exactly right. Like <laughs> at the at, at that time, even a junk Harley was fifteen hundred dollars. Sure, and it wouldn't have run around the block. Mm-hmm. So I said, "Well, all right, screw you guys. I'm going to drive across. I'm just going to head out from Yakima on this CB650 and see where the day takes me." And I made it um, with no like I had a I had a minimal toolkit enough that I could tighten the chain. Mm-hmm. And do you know just the basic stuff sure. adjustments really? Okay. And I made it as far as uh, a little town called Oakley, Kansas, hmm. where uh, in the middle of the night I ran it off the road because at that point, although I'd had quite a bit of you know experience driving cars at at the extreme of their limit, I still didn't fully understand, especially on a motorcycle, the um, the cojones that it took to accelerate out of a corner. Okay, yeah. And I went into a corner too fast and didn't know how to get out of it and flinched. Mm. And I'm all by myself out on a two-lane country road and I was going way too fast for the territory. Well, sure. And it was dark at night and I just went straight off the road. At a certain point I realized either I was going to lay this thing down Mm -hmm. and slide off the road at a... uh, 70 miles an hour or I was going to straighten it up and just drive it off the road. Yeah. And the, you know, the road was obviously banked up. So I was already, uh, 15 feet above the surrounding farmland Mm -hmm. and I went straight off and over some little or over slash through a little wire fence and then into, um, I guess what had recently been harvested fields that had been tilled. Oh, well, that's nice. Disked. That worked out. That worked out pretty well. Yeah, it worked pretty well. And so sank into the soft ground and the bike flipped me and and tangled. And I kind of, I never, I never got completely free of the bike. So Mm -hmm. as it tossed and turned, I also tossed and turned. But the ground was soft and I didn't, I, I was messed up. Sure. And laid up, but I didn't die. Yeah. And when the ambulance finally found me, um, well, that's the other, that's the scary thing. Well, too, yeah, yeah, right. So, I mean, I had to like pull myself up to the road and wait basically for a car. Mm-hmm. And then from the ground, you know, like wave uh, this car to stop. And they didn't like the idea of stopping in the middle of the night for a guy lying on the street. Sure. So they rolled their window down about a inch and a half and they were like, what can we do for you? <laughs> Some Kansas farmer and his wife on the way, you know. And I was like, help. So they had to drive to the next town and call the ambulance. And by the time the ambulance got there, the, you know, the medics got out and they were like, oh my God, thank goodness. Like when we get a call at one o'clock in the morning, motorcycle wreck out on highway 40, mm-hmm. we usually bring shovels and a dustpan. Yeah. 
Um, and the fact that you're here and alive and fine <laughs> and messed up, clearly like screwed up, but uh, but we're so grateful that uh, that you that you made it out alive. And I was like, yeah, you and me both. Wow. So that ended for me the notion that I was a um, that I was going to be like a big motorcycle guy. Mm-hmm. Because all you have to do is crash a motorcycle once and it gets your attention. Well, sure. A lot of people get back up on the motorcycle. And I I kind of down downsized my displacement. Mm-hmm. And I had always had Vespas. Well, sure. That, that's, that's a good way to get around any town. Yeah. So I have a couple of classic Vespas still. Nice. But I didn't want to – I didn't want to – upgrade to some I didn't want to I wanted desperately to be a Harley guy and still do mm-hmm. but I I think it is that I don't have the good judgment to be a you know like I'm that seems to be a common trait among many motorcyclists <laughs> and, I, and I also think I think about that a lot because I'm in the process now of, of kind of learning to ride a bike because wow. living in Los Angeles traffic is it's a thing yeah. I mean it's not as bad as everybody makes it out usually but being able to split lanes and just ride betwixt Ugh. the lines of nearly parked cars. Oh, that's insane to me. Yeah, well, it's, that's the thing is it's insane. It's insane to everybody who isn't here. Yeah. But then the second year, you know, if I'm driving to my office 50 miles away and I'm I'm sat on the on the 101, just kind of twiddling my thumbs, and then just at like 10 or 15 miles an hour, you know, same guy comes like riding up the center line, and I just I have to look at them longingly, yeah. sigh. Yeah. <laughs> but I can't. I mean, I. I've made too many abrupt lane changes in my life and seen too many abrupt lane That's changes. That's true. To ever, because some of those guys are cruising at 40 that, miles an that hour. That is a, a, a very uniquely Washingtonian thing to do is, oh, everything's going fine, everything's going fine. Oh, there's my exit, six lanes Zoom. of traffic. Yeah. I mean, and, and Washingtonians are terrible drivers. Second only to Oregonians. Oregonians are, are <laughs> I mean, Oregonians are borderline people. Yeah. Um, Tennessee drivers are not very good either. Um, it's uh, it's one of those things. I mean, I've driven in all fifty states and multiple times sure. because of of being on tour, and so I have a sense of the you know like Michigan drivers have a real code. Oh yeah, that I consider to be a baloney code, but they're <laughs> you know you really get that sort of. Um, that Scandinavian sense of justice up there sure. that just is infuriating, especially as somebody who's like, look, I'm only in your state for a couple of days. I'm playing a couple of shows. Get out of my way. Like, I'm not interested <laughs> in performing your social contract with your, with you guys. Sure. Like, move it. And then you go down south, and there are a couple of states down there. I mean, there are a lot of motorheads in the south. Oh, yeah. But there are a couple of states where you just get the sense that the evangelicalness also extends to like social judgment of other drivers. Oh, people playing traffic cop. Yeah. So yeah, much of that. I hate that. Where, you know, where a semi will decide that you don't have the right to proceed mm-hmm. any faster than he's going to go. And, oh, yeah. and he keeps, you know, keeps in front of you and won't let you buy. That stuff just drives me bananas. So that's why I like California is people, you know, people are very aggressive drivers yeah. Oh, here. Yeah. Oh yeah. But they're aggressive. There, there's like, um, I feel like there's a sense of camaraderie. Like we know this is miserable. Yeah. We all have to go somewhere as quickly as possible. Right. Let's do this. There are two states that. And then it's hammer down. That's right. Hammer down. And ostracize anybody that's not. (laughs) So like in Texas, there is a sense of, well, as you would expect, right? All every man for himself Mm -hmm. and you know, the biggest truck wins. Sure. In California, 
I think the best example of what you're talking about is the is what I call the zipper merge. Oh yeah, which is two lanes of traffic moving at uh, just flat out. The merge is coming. Everybody sees it. Mm-hmm. You know it's up there. We're all going down to one lane. And in California, somehow there's this collective unconscious where it's like we're we know what to do here. We're going to hit this merge and sure. we're going to try and maintain our full speed. Well, yeah, you're not doing it early. You're not like yeah. I'm going to get this out of the way. Oh. It's like last second. Oh, Boom. that's insane to me, the early merge. I hate it. Right? So they hit that merge, and they're just like, one, two, one, two, yeah. one, two. And that's how it should be. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, throughout the South, throughout the the you know the upper Midwest, and in Seattle, too, there's a sense of like, oh, dear, there's a merge coming four miles away. I'd better get over into that lane. Yes. And you're like, no, no, wrong. Or for a while, at least, you're, you're grateful. Yeah. Because it's like, okay. Okay, dopes, get over in that lane and sit over there, and I'll just cruise on up here because I don't— But then when the time comes to actually merge, then oh. they're like, oh, you should have thought of that earlier, sir. Well, well and that in <laughs> if you try try and pull that move in England, there is so much like— They're going to throw a pint glass oh at you. Oh, my God, there's so much quiet rage <laughs> that is expressed only on the roads in England. Sure, I've seen British comedy. I know it works. Yeah, right. The quiet desperation <laughs> is the English way. And you pull up and try and get in, and they will pull their cars up to within a centimeter of the car in front of them and, and stare straight ahead, <laughs> give you no acknowledgement. And you're like, look, man, I'm an American. I got lost. Like, let me in, please. Yeah. And you, I mean, you have to get out of your car and knock on their window and mm-hmm. say, may I please come in? Yeah, and then you're, you're likely to get a jog on. Yeah. Yeah. But then in New York City, there's that other style of combat driving, Mm -hmm. which is, and this is a little bit true in Detroit too, which is there are rules, which everyone understands. And in New York, the rule is if if the nose of my vehicle is an inch in front of the nose of your vehicle, it's like a sled dog mentality. Sure. Um, That means that I'm in the lead, which means that you have to watch out for me. You're behind me. Mm -hmm. You watch out for me. I'm not watching out for you. I'm looking ahead, watching out for the guy I'm behind. I'm driving here. I'm driving here. <laughs> and so if you're if you're if you're an inch ahead of a, a person and you decide to change lanes or do anything even remotely crazy, it's the person behind your responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that ends up being a completely workable system. Well, sure. Where everybody's just cruising all the time, just you know, 70 miles an hour down Third Avenue, mm-hmm. and there's no there are no collisions, there's no it, it doesn't even feel risky because there's a system. Yeah. And that's what makes Oregon so crazy to drive in is that there's just no agreed upon system. No. Um, and so you, so every single driver is a completely unpredictable. Well, traffic is run puzzle. on the barter system there. So each, each individual <laughs> traffic transaction must be uh, weighed and judged, uh, you know. Sure. Uh, but yeah, like it's, it's, yeah, that is interesting about the, the like the, the, that combat driving thing. Yeah. And yeah, I used to, when I lived in Seattle, I, I, I lived in the university district, which is, is pretty far North mm-hmm. in, you know, for those who aren't familiar with the, the geography of the Seattle area. And I worked in South Seattle, kind of near where Boeing field is. Right. That's where I live down there. Yeah. So trying to get from a to B was one of the most pa- daily painful mm-hmm just infuriating, angry experiences of my life. Because, yeah, as you said, like people are, are kind of uh, weak-willed. They're yeah, weak, weak-willed exactly drivers. Right. That's exactly right. And, and you do, but the other thing, too, is, well, and the reason I like California is you have options. You can go, you can take, surf. I, I could go from, from here, and I could take surface streets and get to Long Beach. Yeah. I could, you know, or I could take 
five different freeways. If you're going north-south in Seattle, you you could, I don't know if you still can, take the viaduct, which yeah. is a nightmare. It's still open. Yeah. Barely. Uh, or you could take uh, the five, yeah. which is a nightmare. Yeah. Or you can attempt to take surface streets, which is just not going to happen. Right. Because geographically, Seattle is, uh, you know, it's one of only two cities in the Americas that uh, is built on an isthmus. I did not know that. So, you know, you have the giant lake on one side and the ocean on the other. Sure. And it it it, it constricts to this crazy bottleneck. Mm-hmm. And you're right. There's just no way through town except for the freeway or um, or the the viaduct and it's a, it's additionally complicated by a ship canal yeah. that only has five bridges over it yes. a, a, across the whole width of the town. Mm-hmm. Um, I love taking surface streets in L.A. and I know lots of people that have lived in L.A. in some cases their whole lives and they have no idea how to navigate the city on the streets. That's my it's my favorite way to drive because I am fortunate in that I'm in a position where I rarely need to be somewhere in a big hurry. That's the key. Yeah, you you work from home most of the time. Like today, I had to be here at around ten. Uh-huh. That that was a that was a pretty hard deadline for uh-huh. me. Uh-huh. Me too. Uh, but but so I could I can take surface streets. So I get to see all this weird stuff. Yeah, all the donut shops and weird little like hamburger joints. Yeah, but also I mean I was I was walking along the other day here on a street and walked uh, past a place and I had to stop and kind of backtrack. It was a vintage outboard motor repair shop. That seems like a place that I would like to root around in for about three or four hours. Me too. And so I'm standing there and I'm looking at these like Evinrudes from the 50s. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, this is an incredible city that it can support, that this person can pay the rent on this shop. Yeah. Um, Just repairing these, I mean, it seems like something that, yeah, uh, Upper Peninsula of Michigan, maybe you'd see a thing like this. Sure. But L.A.? Where's the last place you used an outboard motor in L.A.? But here's this guy. Here's this guy. Yeah. So I, I love I love taking the surface streets here. And, and then, of course, you know how L.A. is laid out. Yeah. And one... Which doesn't make any sense. No, one thing you learn is that it's insane, right? You're at, well, because there's like 600 individual municipalities right. that have now been absorbed into this sort of like like rat king of yeah. civilization and and it's it's desperately trying to work together but then there's these little little pockets of order like uh, which which you start to appreciate or the thing that i notice too is is the quality of pavement from area to area really varies, varies so drastically so you drive you drive down even like wilshire wilshire is essentially the main street of los angeles you take it from east of downtown to the ocean you can take on the whole way right it's great and like you know but the you know the, the pavement is, is it's real crappy and it gets kind of okay and then it's crappy through downtown and it gets crappy through MacArthur Park and then it's kind of okay through Koreatown and it's crappy again as you get through the Miracle Mile and then you get into Beverly Hills and it's beautiful right because Beverly Hills is its own municipality right. same with um, West Hollywood so they're not relying on LA to do it's 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 all very it's it's fascinating to me like the the way it's it's such a mess but it's a beautiful mess I think Rat King describes it perfectly I mean yeah. Washington Boulevard goes all the way from Venice mm-hmm. all the way through town on a on a route that can only be described as circuitous although sure. it doesn't actually make a circle no but <laughs> but it goes somehow it finds its way to downtown and then continues on and uh and any almost any road that you try and follow, Pico or Venice or Pico is one of my favorites. It, like to start 
in the west side and then drive all the way down. Pico is one of the most interesting streets yeah. uh, to, to drive down. There's so much bizarre stuff. So if you, anyway, all by way of saying if uh, to the listener, if you're ever in Los Angeles, don't take the freeways. It's the it's the it's really the wrong move. It is. Most mm-hmm. of the time it's a lot of times, I mean, depending on time of day, of course, it's slower. Yeah. Because you could be doing 12 miles an hour on the freeway just looking at people pick their noses, or you could be doing 28 miles an hour <laughs> hauling ass. Yeah. Well, and the thing I learned when the the GPS systems first came online, mm-hmm. I was on tour quite a bit and, at, and also on tour in Europe, and everyone insisted that we, that we take these sort of prototypical GPS systems. Sure. Uh, because the the suspicion was that some Americans driving around Europe in a van wouldn't be able to find their way, mm-hmm. and that's just a prejudice. I mean, uh, almost every American band that tours in Europe yeah. is forced to hire a tour manager, yeah, because of this huge prejudice that that you won't be able to navigate. Sure, but the tour manager is always from the Czech Republic. He doesn't know Austria any more <laughs> than you do, and so I always said, you know, I'm not paying an extra guy just to drive. Yeah. Like, I now I'm here in a Sprinter van. Rue Strasse, I know what it works. Yeah, right. And and this was before Sprinters came to America. They're nice. So, so Sprinters were a very novel thing for us. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're driving. Well, the the GPS always put you on the ring road. Sure. And here we are. We're on the way to the club, but we have a little extra time. We're we want to go to the club through the town. It's I don't want to be on a ring road. Mm-hmm. And you see it here in LA and you see it everywhere you go, like the GPS navigation. We didn't used to have it and we found no. where we wanted to go. And so I don't use them. I don't turn them on. I'll still look at a map and see where I'm going and then you sure. feel your way. Yeah, I, I like to guesstimate. Like I know yeah. like generally where I'm at. I know yeah. generally where that thing yeah, is. You get there, you find it. Yeah. Well, now the thing and the big that cause, it's causing a lot of problems here is uh, uh, Waze. Oh, yeah. Because it tells you the most like Rube Goldberg right. kind of like way to get the, like yeah. cut across the six lane road with no stop signs. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then fly over the reservoir yeah. and then go through this person's driveway and across their garden. Yeah. Have you seen the Blues Brothers? Press yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 absurd. So people get really mad because all these formerly quiet residential streets are now like packed with traffic at yeah. rush hour because people are trying to get there. I just find it's, it's distracting. No, I would be mad too. And it's, it's, it's crazy because you see these people doing, and, and Uber drivers are especially... You know the the car service people they like they'll they'll do these crazy maneuvers where they're gonna like like mash the gas and then just like hook a left yeah. like just praying that nothing happens to them or their passengers <laughs> and it's like it's no I'm never in that big of a hurry yeah please it's, stop it seems miserable um so yeah I guess I, <laughs> uh, after that that brief digression um you. Uh, I guess you you have a lot, kind of an interesting stable of vehicles. Currently, yeah, um, you've got uh, it was it's a seventy two suburban. I have a seventy nine seventy nine suburban. suburban. Okay. I would have uh, so the suburban design um, from so there's the the old suburbans that kind of look like Corvairs almost mm-hmm. that are just like they were they were still uh, designed as farm trucks and delivery trucks. Sure, and I'm talking about the mid sixties suburban, and then. Uh, then the the uh, the transition was made to the the late '60s, early '70s suburbans, which were the three door mm-hmm. suburbans, the sort of Jimmy yeah, yeah. Uh, looking style. And I always kind of coveted those, but it also seemed a little those seemed a little too on the nose, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the real suburbans that I 
grew up with in Alaska and cared the most about. The were, boxy ones. The boxy ones. From Everybody's me. grandparents had. My parents' grandparents towed their Airstream with a, a boxy. Yeah. With a, it was the, the vertical split doors in the rear. Uh-huh. The barn doors. Yep. And those came on in 73, I think. And uh, it was a very long-lived design. And they lasted and they, they continued to make them until 91. Oh, wow. Um, and as you say, everybody had one. Uh, but I had a particular love for the round headlight suburbans of the 1970s because sure. they still had that um, that tractor-like quality, mm-hmm. but they had begun to have more comfortable uh, amenities. You know, you they had uh, air conditioning, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but crank windows and an AM radio. I mean, they were still they weren't SUVs yet. Yeah. That, that, term hadn't been coined the, the utility was emphasized right and by the late by the even the mid 80s they suburbans had become these bloated velour seated mm-hmm. running boards and you know uh, adjustable seat kind of um high highfalutin electrical stuff that was going to go haywire mm-hmm. and they had four headlights and sometimes 14 headlights <laughs> i didn't like those at all but the suburbans of my childhood that i really that I really admired were the mid seventies ones. And so I coveted them as I got to be a middle-aged person rather than buy a red Corvette. Sure. I wanted the hot rod of my childhood, which was a 70s suburban four wheel drive with a 400, 400 small block. Mm -hmm. And I found one and bought it. And, um, most of them are gone. You know, they were, they were worked so hard and they rusted out and they were beat up. And now, so I have a 79 Suburban. I drive all around. I'm constantly, you know the way your eye, you train your eye to detect certain cars. Oh, yeah. And now my eye is trained to detect any car that's earlier than, you know, than 89, mm-hmm. uh, just because there's so few interesting cars on the road. Sure. But it's very hyper attuned to these cars that I love, uh, like any kind of German car, mm-hmm. any car built before 75, and Suburbans. And I have, I, I mean, the number of Suburbans I've seen that date pre-84, I mean, I can count on one hand. Yeah, I can't, I can't think of having seen one in the last, personally, in the last, like, 15 years. No, they're just, easily. they're gone. Yeah. Uh, because nobody valued them as a thing to, to desire. Sure. They were just a thing to work. And it took me a long time to find the one that I found. And it needs, it needs quite a bit of work. I've put money into it. Mm-hmm. But it just conveys a kind of capability and simplicity to me. Um, it's still, it's the motor is still way pre-computer. Oh, sure. It's, uh, you know, it's running a Rochester carburetor. If you get double-digit gas mileage, you're doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah, right. And I mean, I never open the secondaries. I try to keep, I mean, I do sometimes, but I try to keep it Well, just you know, you get the old around. Italian tune-up once in a while, you know. And I've done, you know, I've done like a, like a, a cowboy timing mm-hmm. a couple of times where you're just you loosen the distributor and you're like, mm, sounds good. Yeah, mm, yeah that, that, that'll yeah. work. That sounds a lot better than it did. Yeah, that's the, the old, uh, uh, my, my grandfather's favorite saying, it's better than it was. Better than it was, that's exactly better, right. Yeah. Um, so I have that Suburban and I also have a 75 GMC RV. Yes, that's was, that was going to be my next topic of conversation because as a, a, a lifelong aficionado of Stripes, the uh, the GMC RV has loomed large. In, yeah, 
It's a, it's a tremendous achievement, the GMCRV. They, it was designed during a, like a pre-gasoline crisis American era. Well, with, with, with a, 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 what was it, a 455 a, a Buick engine yeah. like sitting over the front wheels? Yep, it would have to be. It's got the Buick Wild or uh, the, uh, the Tornado, mm-hmm. uh, the Oldsmobile Tornado motor that was also used in those front-wheel drive Cadillac Eldorados. Oh, yes. And it's this, you know, this massive big block, uh, like super motor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a front wheel drive RV. It's uh, it was designed and manufactured by the Corvette team, so it's all fiberglass. And because it's front wheel drive, the there's no drivetrain, so you're it's very low low yeah. access. So cool. It's a it's really a unique vehicle, and it has a it has a very deep enthusiast crowd. Mm-hmm. But enthusiast crowd, average age nineteen or average age seventy years old. Sure, that's well, that's that's the best because those guys can actually do stuff. Oh my god, they can fix things. They have knowledge. They're incredibly capable, and because and this, they're excited to talk about it. That's boy. the that's the thing I find. Is having, you, I have an old guy car, so when I when somebody's like seventy wanders up and starts to talk to him, like this is a conversation that I need to have. Let me get my notebook. Yeah, like exactly right. And this and the GMC RV, all you have to do is pull it into anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, any parking lot, and some old man will walk over and start talking to you about it. And then he, it turns out if he has one or ever had one, he probably also worked for Grumman yeah. or for <laughs> Northrop. Sure. And he was a test pilot or an, uh, like an engine, always an engineer. Mm-hmm. I've met more 70 year old engineers, uh, and I already knew a lot of 70 year old engineers. Sure. But this really attracts a certain kind of person because in 1977, this was peak technology. Mm -hmm. And now it seems like, now it seems anachronistic, but but it has this enthusiast club and the old men are starting to realize that if they don't recruit a new generation of drivers, that their whole, uh, this intellectual history of these vehicles is gonna be lost. Yeah. So they're desperately trying to get 30-year-olds to be interested in this culture and this cult. Mm-hmm. But they need to be... This This is the bridge that we need between the millennials and the boomers. That's right. That's right. It's, it's the GMCRV. It's the GMCRV. <laughs> but it requires that you be interested in tinkering. Yeah. And uh, there are so many fewer 30-year-olds that want to turn a wrench on a motor True. than there are 50-year-olds mm-hmm. uh, just because it wasn't part of the culture growing up. Cars became much more disposable mm-hmm. um, be- when computers arrived. And, and, and even driving my Suburban, I, I kind of made the false assumption that there were still a lot of uh, backyard mechanics working in the, working as mechanics. Oh, yeah, no. And they're all gone, right? And so I would pull this, I'd pull my truck in and I'm like, yeah, it's got a 400 small block. If you can't figure out how to work on a Chevy small block, mm-hmm. what are you doing in coveralls? Well, I mean, at the same, but at the same time, like you know, the the the, the level of similarity between you know a three fifty Chevy small block of any you know uh, pre nineteen ninety four whatever a generation and like a modern four cylinder something out of a Honda Civic, mm. like. They both use gasoline. Yeah. They both have some of the same like resim- parts that resemble each other, yeah. but there's so little like crossover in terms of knowledge that like, you know, like how how does somebody, you know, 
like figure out okay well i need to i need to get push rods that are the right length for this and, the, and my, my 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 rocker ratio needs to be like it's just it's there's so much sort of esoteric weird like black art knowledge that's just going away well and and in diagnostics mm-hmm. first right because if you can't a, a contemporary mechanic just plugs it into the machine and it tells him what's going on mm-hmm. and old style shade tree mechanics would listen to it oh yeah and diagnose you know in most cases gotta put that, a vacuum tube in your ear and <laughs> that's right yeah. eh? I, I i broke down somewhere like outside of kansas city in this suburban and uh a tow truck driver came along to help me out and he was a younger guy but he was a four he was a mudder mm-hmm. right a four-wheel drive um mud bogger sure Camouflage hat, dog food uh, uh, brand on it, that yeah. kind of thing. Very nice. And we're looking at it. We're looking at the motor, and he's like, you know, I don't know what – I don't know these motors, but I know a guy who does. Mm-hmm. And so he calls up his buddy, and the buddy says, you know, there's a mark on the harmonic balancer that uh, that if you look at – because the balancer is is – outside of the motor, not inside it. And mm-hmm. you can see this mark go by if you shine a flashlight on it. And that'll tell you, th- that'll tell you if it's a 400 and that'll tell you this, that, and the other. And he, over the phone, kind of gave us this knowledge to look in the motor and make some determinations sure. of how it was running. Um, and that was the, that's the stuff that is just, that guy had, had that knowledge because he won it mm-hmm. over time. And to lose it, that's not a thing that you're going to open up a Chilton manual oh, yeah. and get to right away. Mm-hmm. So, so, and not myself being a particularly talented mechanic, I've invested myself in these vehicles and then it immediately presented a problem. Yeah. I needed to find a 70-year-old mechanic to help me. Mm-hmm. And in the GMCRV community, there's uh, there's something called the Black Book, which is all of these people. This is and you you spoke about this at length on on your other podcast. Uh, and this is one of the more exciting things that I think, like the the fact that there's like some secret, quasi secret uh, uh, society of GMCRV enthusiasts, and there's an actual directory. Yeah, a directory, and they oh. are very much motivated by a pay it forward ethic. Mm-hmm. So. A lot of these guys actually are the type of people that have a uh, like a hangar on their property or a, or a barn of some kind that has six classic cars in it. Plus, like it's a full shop. That's the dream, right? And they have, you know, they have their own uh, fabricating tools, and they're in there customizing their own thing. And so, driving my GMC RV across the country, uh, even to the amount that I have done, I've been in five different barns mm-hmm. uh, because I'm having a little bit of, you know, something's going wrong. The water pump goes out and I call up somebody from, I open the black book and it's, and there's a guy four miles down the road yeah. that turns out has, has, uh, <laughs> has like a massive shop behind his humble home mm-hmm. and he spends all his time out there and he's, uh, you know, he, he builds experimental airplanes and he's like, yeah, let's, uh, you know, wheel your truck in here. Yeah. And in most cases, all they want is uh, the money for parts or... Sure. And so it's great to join a an automotive enthusiast community. Yeah, that's the thing. And, and I've talked about this with other guests. Like the internet has made... Especially like, I, like I'm interested in German cars. I have a 46-year-old Mercedes 
So having like the internet as a resource, being able to go on a forum and ask like, you know, even the most bizarre questions like I'm getting a gasoline smell in my trunk, but nothing appears to be like, oh, well, here, check these six things. And like, oh my God, no, like it's so satisfying and it makes it accessible. That's the thing is like there was for a long time, like if you didn't already know these people, you know, like in person, if there wasn't like a community of these people locally, like you're on your own figuring it out. But, But now like there's this collected knowledge on the internet that allows somebody in, you know, Enumclaw, Washington, or, uh, 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 you know, a uh, uh, Bishop, California, whatever, to, to own these vehicles and, and, and you know, have them not be a, as much of a burden as they would otherwise be. That said, I did spend like three hours trying to remember how to install ignition points over the last week. <laughs> and I will say that I installed them properly. And, oh, good man. Yeah, yeah. No, I haven't done that since I was in high school. And uh, feeling pretty good about myself, John. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> You know, my uncle used to have a a, a two thirty SL Pagoda. Oh yeah, and this was back in the. It might have been a two eighty. This was back in the time when you could buy one of those in fairly fine condition. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, nobody was restoring them yet. Sure. Let's say that you buy one for twelve thousand dollars, and he had this great Pagoda that was just like it was the car they drove on a nice summer day. Yeah. And I was driving it one time, and the shift linkage broke. Mm-hmm. And I'm out in the middle of somewhere, and I'd been loaned this car, and it was already like, oh, wow, I get to drive my uncle's car, and then the <laughs> linkage breaks. And I'm sitting somewhere, and I'm just like, I don't know what to do. And so I, cl- I climbed under the car, and it sat pretty low, and mm-hmm. I'm a big guy. So I'm under this car with about uh, an inch and a half of clearance between my nose and the and the frame mm-hmm. and there's the linkage and you see where the pin broke yeah and i got some tape and taped it together and off i went yeah. you know off i went and it it just felt like um it felt like those things oh, well then they were right they were built they were just hand built in a way that um, exactly there was no, there, it wasn't any more complicated than it had to be. They were meant to be repaired, not replaced. That's yeah. what I like about, about my car is that I can, if there's something not right, there's usually a screw or a knob or a linkage or, or something to adjust or like a big metal box for a relay that I can like flick really hard and it'll <laughs> generally work. Like I, I like that. Yeah. Like I, I like feeling like if something goes wrong, I will probably be, you know, probably be able to limp myself back to wherever I need to go. And yeah. that's, that's, you just can't do that now. Well, and the biggest problem with my RV is that somewhere along the line, some old, uh, some old engineer mm-hmm. converted it to an early fuel injection system. Oh, God. And the, I mean, here's this thing. It's, uh, it's 40 years old. Mm-hmm. The biggest problem I have is calibrating this stupid fuel injection mm-hmm. because the computer is, from a from a Commodore sixty four, <laughs> and it's not. There's no way to really plug into it. You have to. There's a light on the dashboard that flashes sure. in a code. But if you want to, if you want to play Pitfall, you're good. <laughs> you're set up. Yeah. So I can't. I, and I and I want to return it to a carburetor, but mm-hmm. all the old men are like, no, car, because they're still engineers. Sure. And they're like, no, you need a better fuel injection system. That is, as as a as a something of an expert, John, I would recommend that there are a lot of very simple, yeah, uh, modern fuel injection systems that you can really you don't even need a computer to program. They have a box uh-huh. and they just write on. It's very yeah. simple. And, and that's what that's where I need to go. Yeah. Right? 
but uh, but that old that old like tape the linkage together and make it down the road. I had a '72 Chevy truck that also had this problem where I got underneath it to tighten the linkage because mm-hmm. the linkage was rattling and it had a three on the tree. And every time you went to shift, you kind of had to go uh, into the into the next area code and then mm-hmm. find it, you know, <laughs> pull back. And it was it was very much rattling sure. itself apart. And I went down to try and adjust it and, of course, broke it, you know, <laughs> broke the head off the bolt. And then I was driving around with that kind of wired together with a coat hanger. Well, sure. And uh, that that truck, I don't know what, I, that didn't catch on fire, but it, somewhere along the line I parked it on the side of the road and walked away from it. <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, there is there's, there's that point. Uh, I've, I've felt like doing that with several several cars that I've owned. Yeah. I had an Alfa Romeo for a while and I was pretty sure that it was disintegrating around me as I drove. What like kind I was, of Alfa? It was a 1977 Alfetta sedan. Oh, nice. It was kind of nice. Italian cop car. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I sh- what I should have done, honestly, is just like hose it down with pour 15 to stop the rust and then spray paint carabinieri on the side. <laughs> Put up one, one red light on yeah. the top. Get the hat, get like the, was it the Gucci hat yeah. and just, you know, but I didn't. I, I was nineteen. Yeah. That's. A, I feel like that's the kind of car you you only buy uh, when you're nineteen years old. Yeah. Or when you're like in your fifties, because anyone in between is smart enough to know that that's a bad idea. Yeah, it's a real money money Cause, sink. Because I drove I drove it every day. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. <laughs> I had a Fiat 124 Spider Oof. that I uh, that I really really and this was a this was a terrible car for Alaska mm-hmm. uh, when I bought it everybody <laughs> I think was that's like pretty you true. bought a Fiat Spider like you and everywhere around me it's just blazers mm-hmm. right just blazers in every direction and I'm there with the top down and you're my just gonna ski skate over on. the snowbanks yeah it was it was a genius little car mm-hmm. um, and I still have a lot of affection for them they're very affordable little Italian yeah, sports cars. But uh, it rusted around me, um, and I kept the motor running pretty well. But it just the body just shredded itself. Yeah, most of those came pre-rusted from the factory. Yeah, I'm pretty right. sure. But I pulled that one. I pulled that one into a guy's driveway in Girdwood, Alaska, and was like, "Hey, I'm going away to college. Will you store this car for me?" And I left him the keys, and then I never came back for it. Nice. And I heard a few years later that he and his buddies were driving it around Girdwood and had. I think maybe even cut the top off <laughs> and it had just become like a rally car. Sure. Uh, but it, you know, I, it may still survive. Who knows? I hope so. Yeah. That's uh, that's yeah, that's the thing is the guy that bought my alpha from me um, may be the bravest human being I've ever met. Uh, he caught the train out from Michigan. Oh, pay, he wired me $500 sight oh. unseen, caught the train out from Michigan, picked it up at a McDonald's, parking lot near the space needle said is there anything i need to know i'm like sometimes the starter doesn't work when it's real hot hit it with a hammer or let it sit for 10 minutes and you're good or push it he's like that's it that's it <laughs> and then he drove it back to michigan wow i hope he's not dead oh my goodness I it's love possible him. he's dead let's, i let's, love him yeah he's a, he's, a, he's a bravest man i've ever met so uh, one time i was living in washington dc and uh and i a guy and I, we were working for Ralph Nader, mm-hmm. and we decided that we were going to quit our jobs and we were going to go to Telluride, Colorado, and become ski instructors. And he <laughs> had he had a, a an Audi four thousand. Sure, and the that seems like an appropriate ski instructor car. Absolutely, yeah. except in the case of this one, the motor mounts had rusted to the point that the the rear motor mounts mm-hmm. had given way. 
and the motor had sagged <laughs> so that it was only being held by the front mounts and it had sagged so that the drivetrain now was it had sagged just enough that it it still ran but the but the you know the uh the joint between the transmission and the drivetrain was now at an angle mm-hmm. and so we determined that it was not drivable to Colorado. Uh, it was like limping around town, mm-hmm. but but it, and it was amazing that it still. And it was amazing that the motor hadn't fallen out of it, and it was amazing that it still could maintain an angle in that. What is that joint called? Like the a universal joint. A universal joint. Yeah. That it, that the universal joint could accommodate this um, this angle. Carden joint. If uh, if you're a British listener, a Carden joint. Yeah. And so we, but we still wanted to go to Colorado and this was our only method of transportation. So uh, between the two of us, we, uh, we devised this plan. We were parked across the street from a construction site. Mm-hmm. We took the jack out of the trunk and we put the jack, we, we collected a couple of two by fours. We put the two by fours on top of the jack, between the jack and the motor, the bottom of the motor. Sure. And we jacked the motor up until it appeared to be, until it was uh, above level mm-hmm. right so um we gave it a little bit of of uh sure a little just in case room that's right a little privilege and then we took additional pieces of wood four by fours from the construction site and wedged them in between the rear of the motor and the firewall mm-hmm. and then let the jack down and had to do that a few times jack it back up stick more wood in there sure until it until it looked good, until yeah. the motor seemed to be sitting flat. Well, pine, it's nature's motor mount. That's right. Yeah. And so the motor was being held up by this shim, mm-hmm. uh, this, you know, the several shims uh, by the firewall. Mm-hmm. And we drove that from Washington, D.C. to Telluride. <laughs> we made it the entire distance. And I mean, the whole way I kept expecting that the lumber was going to catch on fire. I didn't, I sure. couldn't understand how how it, this was working. Sure. Well, being a 1980s Audi, I'm sure that the oil that it was inevitably leaking had a preservative quality on the wood. <laughs> I, it just, it, uh, it still astonishes me that we were, that we were willing to embark on this journey, but it, uh, but back then it always seemed like, well, if the car catches on fire, we'll stick out our thumbs. Yeah. It'll work out. Yeah. It'll work out. And, it, and we made it. And uh, yeah, that's, that's still a great auto adventure. Um, that I would like to sit, I would like to look at an Audi 4000 now, open the hood and look in and see how it was possible. Yeah. Uh, because it, you know, it seems implausible. But there was. It does. It does. Well, this is officially our longest episode. Oh, good. John, by, by, uh, let's see, what is it? Eight minutes now. Uh-huh. Well, so. we could talk for obviously another four hours. But. We could, we could, but I like the idea that maybe next time you're in town, you'll come back and regale us with more. I would uh, love it. Fantastic. I would love it. We've hardly even talked about our fantasy cars. Oh or, my god. Yeah. Let me let me the the list of cars that would that would be in my hypothetical garage yeah. that are like weird French, possibly Eastern European. <laughs> the, it's like it, it's absurd. Like I, uh-huh. I have. Um, just yeah, like having having been an automotive enthusiast for basically my entire life. And then also being the sort of this first generation that really got the internet at a young age, right? Has has sort of like coalesced into this. Now my interests are, are like only the weirdest stuff gets right. me excited. Rear engined check cars. Oh yeah, don't even talk to me about a, a Serena. <laughs> 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 so, 
Well, we I actually have a Trabant in the vault. So for a long time, I wanted to be, I wanted to import Lada's. I figured that, you know, how you get a shipping container, you go yeah. over there and buy 40 Lottas for sure. uh, $200 a piece. And by the time it got back, you'd have three and then six <laughs> piles of rust and oil. <laughs> but, you know, it's a two-cycle motor, right? How, mm-hmm. What can go wrong? Yeah. Um, and they're, everything they're, can go wrong. Lotta, Lotta Neva, I believe, is their little sort of... Uh, like two-door SUV that oh, yeah. people oh, love those, those things. Those are incredible little trucks. Apparently, they, they're very popular in like Iceland. People yep. like to drive them in Iceland, and I'm like, that's, like, that, that, that's relevant to yeah, my Yeah, they're interests. very capable. All that Soviet technology where it's like, there aren't going to be parts. These aren't fixable, mm-hmm. so build it the first time. I mean, that's the AK-47 model, right? Sure. You could throw dirt and mud into it and it still runs. Oh, yeah. Um, Just like my old Volvo 240. Exactly. Yeah, same. Those are great cars. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for taking some time out of your uh, uh, Los Angeles trip. Thank you, to, sir. Uh, to visit the museum. I'm, and now we're going to show you around and and, and, and uh, hopefully you uh, come back and visit us again. I, I love I love the idea. I'm headed to the airport right after this, uh, this tour. So. Well, there you go. Uh, see you next time. Indeed. And thank you guys for stopping by for yet another Car Stories. Uh, we always like to bring you interviews with people you might not hear otherwise. You know, maybe maybe uh, your world doesn't cross over with John's and you wouldn't hear his excellent podcasts or, uh, you know, maybe uh, race car drivers wouldn't normally show up in your social media feeds. But uh, but we're here to bring you their stories. So um, check back every Tuesday. And uh, yeah, next week we'll have uh, another person. Any It could be anybody, literally anybody. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Hello, this is Kyle from the Car Stories podcast. The uh, podcast you just finished listening to was brought to you by the Auto Gallery, who are good friends of the Peterson.